Welcome to Pemba On Demand. I'm Norm Chapin, your host. I am very excited to welcome you to our podcast. Pemba On Demand is produced for physicians interested in professional development. We will be discussing a wide range of topics on the podcast. I will be interviewing physician leaders from the U.S. and from other countries who have graduated from the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee. These physicians will be sharing stories of professional and personal growth, overcoming challenges in their organizations, and discussing key leadership skills they have learned from the MBA program and ongoing professional development. I am pleased to introduce Bruce A. Meyer. Bruce is Executive Vice President and Western Pennsylvania Market President for Highmark Health Network. Our show today is Care Reimagined, a healthcare systems transformation. Bruce joined Highmark Health in 2022, and he oversees Highmark Health's blended payer-provider strategy in the Western Pennsylvania market in both payer and provider divisions. Prior to joining Highmark, Bruce served as the president of Jefferson Health in Philadelphia, and he was the senior executive vice president for Thomas Jefferson University. In that role, he was responsible for all the clinical services in both acute care and outpatient settings. Prior to accepting his role in Philadelphia, Bruce served as the Executive Vice President for Health System Affairs and Executive Director of the Faculty Practice Plan at UT Southwestern in Dallas. A prolific author and educator, Bruce has also served as Residency and Fellowship Program Directors and has held seats as Academic Chairs. Bruce is an alumnus of the Physician Executive MBA Program at the University of Tennessee. It is a distinct honor to welcome Dr. Bruce Meyer to the show. My pleasure. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I'm excited that the audience has the opportunity to learn what you're going to be sharing today. Uh, today, our, our show, as you know, is focused on value-based care and really how you are leading and involved in system-wide transformation at Highmark Health out in Pennsylvania but before we begin your presentation, I was wondering if you would mind sharing a little bit with the audience about your decision to attend the University of Tennessee at uh, the PEMBA program at the University of Tennessee. Yeah, long ago and far away now, um, 1999. Um, it seems like the blink of an eye. I, I would say at the time, um, my revelation was that I had served on the finance committee of the medical group at SUNY at Stony Brook. And I realized that was when capitation was going to be the way that the world was going to be paid. And I realized that we had no idea at all how to work in a capitated world. And that um, it was sort of the beginning of what, what I would describe as a slide that I've used now for 20 plus years, which starts with um, healing is an art, uh, medicine is a science, but healthcare is a business. And it was sort of the beginning of my understanding of healthcare as a business. And so I wanted to find a program in which it was really about healthcare and the business of healthcare. And, and what I loved about PEMBA was that it really was focused on healthcare. And at the time, it was the only program. There are copycats now, but uh, not many of them. And, um, and I really was interested in finding, you know, no disrespect to my MBA brethren who have lots of other work that they do that's important, um, but uh, but I wanted something that was truly focused on healthcare. I wasn't really interested in learning about 
stocks and bonds in a profound way or, you know, how to short uh, a stock or, or, you know, sort of how to make work, you know, how to work deals with a bank around um, high level financing. Although interestingly, I've wound up doing some of that work. Um, but, uh, but I was really interested in sort of having a deep understanding of how healthcare was a business and how the business of healthcare was um, run and what were the levers inside that business that altered the dynamic for all the pieces and parts, including the customers of that business, patients and families. So what was the biggest outcome that you expected from getting your MBA? How did you think it would really impact your career or your professional fulfillment? Yeah. Well, I think I was hoping to advance my career because I would have another degree that, that I mean, selfishly, um, that's a, a truthful fact. Uh, what, what I would say is maybe the revelatory part is that, especially at that time, although I think this still persists, what, what I got out of Pemba was what I would describe as a very sophisticated toolkit. But I didn't have, I hadn't used that toolkit to a great degree when I walked out the door. But people who saw the MBA on my resume assumed that I knew how to use that toolkit in a very sophisticated way. So it was remarkable in terms of how I was instantaneously, you know, on the recruiting radar for, for every search firm in the country. And, and it took me a little while to sort of understand, okay, how do I sort out all these issues? I became very popular and that was great and, and led to lots of career opportunities. I mean, you know, I often describe Pemba as the gift that truly keeps on giving because every career opportunity that I have had has related to skills that I learned at Pemba or skills that I applied in the job that I had that I had learned at Pemba that allowed me to move to the next level role. Was there a, was there an impact that you really didn't anticipate something that you took away from the MBA program that you really didn't anticipate? So I'll, I would say it's, it is organizational development. Um, I had not at the time understood how important uh, development of your people is to having a successful organization. And um, one of the great things, I and I didn't really, you know, I looked at the curriculum, but I didn't really understand the impact of organizational development in the curriculum. And it was something that I took away that was not really on my radar screen before I had, you know, started in the coursework, but became a crucial part and even more crucial as my career progressed, sort of, you know, the bigger organization you're in and the bigger hunk of the world that you're a leader, the more critical organizational development and your people development becomes because one of the remarkable things that occurred at particularly out of my transition uh, going through Pemba was that prior to Pemba, I would say I was a subject matter expert who if other people couldn't do it, I could do it. And I was pretty certain that I could do it better than the majority of people who were doing it. Pemba taught me that if I want to lead a larger organization, I'm not always going to be the subject matter expert and I'm not always going to be in a position where I can do it, but I got to lead people and I got to create a team of people who can accomplish all those things because as one person, there's only so much I can do. But if I have an effective team, there's an enormous number of people that we can impact from a staff perspective, 
from a patient perspective, from a community perspective. And that's the, I would say the beauty of Pemba for me was I started thinking, hey, this is going to allow me to read a spreadsheet and understand the difference between a PL and a balance sheet. And, and, and that will help me in terms of the work that I have to do acutely. And what I got out of it was a much bigger world, an exposure to really, you know, complicated dynamics of organizational um, workings and, and the very, very complicated interplay between payers and providers, uh, between, uh, you know, device manufacturers and uh, pharma and those kinds of things that were, you know, I knew about it. it was kind of off the radar screen. It wasn't really what I was looking for directly out of Pemba, but allowed me to really understand that and, and to dive deep. That's a really interesting observation about leading while not being a subject matter expert. And I think that's still an interesting dilemma for physicians who are moving into physician leadership roles. There are some physician leaders who really feel strongly that it's important for them to maintain a certain amount of clinical um, practice and clinical to, to be seen as a clinical leader. But I've also found other physicians, including myself, who as I moved into higher positions in an organization and I was responsible for system-wide and corporate initiatives and those types of things. And as I was leading a more diverse group of physicians, you really can't maintain subject matter expertise in the eyes of every physician that you need to influence in order to move the organization forward. Yeah, I fully, fully agree with that. It's And, and I will say as an example, the role that I'm currently in is the first role where I have not clinically practiced at all. I think that depending on your role, there there is an importance to clinical practice. I love clinical practice. I love the immediate gratification of clinical practice, which is, you know, that is the biggest difference for me in, in terms of, you know, physician leadership and administration is that clinical practice, you feel like every day, you know, when you come home, you feel like you did something good for somebody every day when you're clinically practicing. My kids used, my, my older kids used to joke sort of, what'd you do today, daddy? Or how many babies did you deliver today? And it was like, I could say, hey, today I did three deliveries or, you know, that kind of thing. Or I went to the OR today and I did this cool surgery on somebody. And now, and we have younger kids now, we have a, we adopted some kids later in life. And my kids asked me what I do for, you know, I did today. And I kind of say, well, I sat in a chair for 14 hours and had meetings and they go, that's a terrible job. <laughs> so, but it, the, you know, taking call and trying to do clinical work and trying to, you know, squeeze clinical work in the middle of critical decisions or you know, work that you're doing in terms of mentoring other people or, or trying to wrestle, a, a, you know, a strategic plan to the ground kind of a thing. The clinical work can be a real distraction. And, and at some level, you cease being fair to your partners and to the patients and families that you're taking care of. So I have, I have experienced both of those kinds of things where, I mean, originally I went to Pemba to, you know, make myself a more effective leader, but I never intended to stop being a very busy clinician. And I gradually became a less and less busy clinician and now have recognized that being a clinician is actually might be detrimental to the work that I am in the role that I am currently in. And how long have you been in your current role where you have not been doing any clinical practice? So I haven't practiced in four years. Um, in my current role, I've actually been in the role about a year and a half. Um, but in uh, my prior role, I, I stopped practicing. I, I was doing only consultative work and ultrasound, and I stopped doing the last baby I actually delivered was in April of 2017. Okay. All right. Well, that background is very helpful. 
Um, but as I said, we're here to talk about value-based care and, and what you're doing to kind of transform your system. So at this point, I would kind of like to move into your presentation. So I will switch over to your uh, your content here. And then at the end of this, we'll come back and I, I'll have a few questions, I think, about your presentation. Super. So today I want to talk about sort of how we're trying to transform uh, in the world. And, and the, the, the if you can go to the next slide, the foundation of this is really that the economics of healthcare in the United States are really unsustainable. The growth in cost has been remarkable. Um, and uh, in fact, is the largest single cause of personal bankruptcy in this country, healthcare debt. Um, now, the overview really is that, you know, the all the developed uh, systems of the world have a lot in common, right? They all have service providers, they all have innovators, and they all have administrators, right? So, Service providers who are really trying to, you know, take care of the individuals in need and manage you know, family dynamics and those kind of things. And that's 50 to 60 percent of the spend. Another 20 to 30 percent of the spend is really around developing products and services. You can think of that as pharma. You can think of that as device manufacturing and that kind of thing. And then there's watchdogs, regulators, administrators. Um, that includes the insurance system. And that's five to 10 percent of of the spend in the world, but in the United States, it's about 20% because of the real fragmentation of our systems. Um, there's a lot of stuff that um, uh, is in common with all those developed health systems, right? Um, they all have uh, re government regulation. They all have a combination of taxes and out-of-pocket payments by consumers that fund the system. And they all depend on private capital to fund innovation. Um, and they're all heavily regulated. So, you know, in an odd way, you know, we talk about the differences in the U.S., but there's more commonality between U.S. systems and other systems across the world than there is differences. The big differences. So the current time is really uniquely difficult. We have a very, you know, the economy has started to come back now, um, which is great. Um, but we've had real hard economic times and we cycle through economic times. Um, there's a disproportionate growth of Medicare and Medicaid and government payers. The, you know, the, the thing that the average layperson in this country doesn't understand is that almost 60% of care in this country is paid for by the federal or state government. And that funding has a significant shortfall in the actual cost of the care that we provide given our system. And so we have cost shifted over onto the commercial side, whether that's fully insured or self-insured commercial um, uh, payers. And that um, that has been compounded by the very polarized political environment that kind of rewards this partisan brinksmanship and focus group tested sound bites that manipulate voters about very complicated issues in healthcare. And the government and the judicial system that has gotten increasingly interventional in healthcare complicates it further. Beyond that, um, 20 years ago, we had, you know, basically no doctors, uh, less than 10% of physicians were employed. Today, uh, more than 70% of physicians are employed by some larger organization and are not self-employed. And that trend line is only accelerating. And that has happened in private equity, where they're sort of funding these disruptive parlays, where money is taken out of hospitals and put into uh, these uh, private equity uh, funded uh, physician groups. So private equity shares some of that with the physicians, but the money moves out of the hospital. And that has created significant hardship for hospitals where, as an example, in 2022, 70% of hospitals in this country lost money. 
2023. Don't have full data yet, but it looks like about 50% of hospitals will have lost money. Um, that is not a sustainable structure for us. Um, and then um, we are seeing more and more because of the politics and uh, and the complexity of our polarization that there is growing public distrust in the system of healthcare and the goodwill that the public has had for decades and decades is being undermined by sort of real, you know, very real. We talked about the economic issues for patients, but also perceived, uh, you know, profit-taking, whether that profit-taking is by pharma, whether that profit-taking is by hospitals, whether that profit-taking is sometimes by physicians. The public is growing increasingly concerned and getting good information to the public because it is such a complex system is extraordinarily difficult. So how do we get here? Um, well, it, it is, um, uh, if you looked at us in 1980, so that's 50 years ago, right? Uh, our gross domestic product was about the same as every other country in terms of healthcare costs. But inflation for us has been pretty ferocious. If you looked at the same inflation, a, a dozen eggs today, which, you know, costs between four and five dollars uh, in the grocery store would cost seventy three dollars. Lots of contributors to that. Um, we talked about some of them, technology, you know, the cost of care in this country, drug and device development costs. We fund a large proportion of drug and device development across the world. There's a lot of unnecessary service, inefficiently delivered service. We have a lot of administrative costs, particularly in terms of paperwork in order to get paid from governmental and um, private payer sources. <clears throat> and then end of life care, and I'll show you some data about that, and physician pay. It, you know, one of the complex secrets of the United States healthcare system is that physicians are paid between 50 and 100% more in the United States than they are in any other developed country, which is why you don't see physicians from the United States moving to practice in other countries, but you see lots of physicians from other countries trying to move to the United States to practice. So this is healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP, and that wayward line at the top is the United States. All of the other lines are developed countries, you know, first world developed countries. And you can see while there has been some increase, the rate of inflation in the United States has been pretty profound compared to any other country across the world. This is uh, a slide that shows you the growth of health uh, of costs in the United States of various kinds of services. Um, the only service that has a, had a growth in overall cost that's higher than medical care perhaps not surprisingly, is college tuition and fees. And again, that's another industry where heavier scrutiny, you know, what is the value proposition that's actually being received? Are people, can people afford it anymore? Um, same kinds of questions and, and sense of, are we losing the trust of the public around the cost factor and who's making money off of that cost factor? So, uh, I'm not going to go through this in detail, um, but there is a tremendous amount of waste in healthcare, and that waste um, really has lots of different layers. Um, that and we talked about administrative costs, we talked about clinical costs, we talked about operational costs, and we talked about social determinant of health costs. Right in this country, we have gun violence that causes an enormous amount of healthcare. We have obesity that costs us an enormous amount of healthcare. Um, we have other social determinants, homelessness, um, although. The politically correct term is unhoused. Um, and those kinds of things are tremendous burdens on society, but add to the healthcare costs in this country in a disproportionate way compared to other uh, uh, first world countries. And the reason for that is because other first world countries have a much more closely tied social safety net and public health structure 
to the actual cost of care than the United States. Those are in the United States, those are really sort of parallel play kinds of work that occurs. And it's not that there isn't some cooperation, but they're not tied intimately together. End of life is a huge, huge issue for cost of care in this country compared to other countries. If you look at our spending uh, in the last 20 years of life, it is fivefold any other country. And in fact, our spending in the last six months of life is almost tenfold that of any other country. Some of that is because we just don't do a lot of end of life planning in the United States with uh, patients and families. And where other countries have well-developed systems to try to do that and to ensure that they are balancing the equation between quantity of life and quality of life in a much more profound way. The additional thing is that we have wide variations in care. Uh, you know, the title kind of says it all. How can the best medical care in the world cost twice as much as the best medical care in the world? This is Medicare data, Medicare beneficiary, not Medicare Advantage, but straight Medicare with chronic disease in the last two years of life. Um, and this data has been validated in 2013 to be approximately the same with about a, a 10% inflation factor. But you can see that in highly regarded organizations across the country, there is an enormously wide variation in spending per Medicare beneficiary, which because Medicare pays these folks the same amount of money because it's a standard fee schedule, um, it's just that we're doing a lot more stuff to people that's causing different kinds of costs. So this kind of, I don't know whether the right amount of spend is $76,000 or $35,000, but I know they both can't be right for the same patient. And so we don't have that kind of highly structured rationalization of this is the care pathway and this is the limit of spend that we will do. Other countries have that. England, Canada, Sweden, Norway uh, are primary examples. So this is part of the conundrum in the United States of why does our healthcare cost so much? If you go to the next slide, um, we don't really get better outcomes. If you look at the United States way off to the right-hand side, the average age of demise is um, actually lower than a lot of other first world countries. You can see on the x-axis the cost piece um, per member per year. And you see that we spend a lot more money. We don't get more longevity uh, in terms of outcome compared to lots and lots and lots of other countries. So what's next? Um, the issue here for us is that we have to transform ourselves from a fee-for-service structure where the incentive in some ways is to do more stuff to people because that's how we make a living. And I recognize that no physician comes to the office every day saying, I'm going to do more stuff to people today so I can make money. But I would say every physician is aware that if they don't do stuff, then there's no revenue stream. And we have to move toward more a value-based structure. Um, and the challenge for us is, is sort of this middle thing where how do we bridge the gap of loss where in a fee-for-service world, to move to a value-based world, we have to reduce ER visits, reduce readmission, reduce specialty visits, reduce procedures, that kind of thing. But then revenue goes down. And how do we manage that? And if we can move to a world where we're thinking more about gain share, about partnering with, provi with pro providers and payers, um, doing more care coordination, engaging patients in a much more profound way to help them take care of themselves. Um, and then looking at, at data to be able to drive um, care. So look at rising risk and high risk folks. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the data that says 5% of people in this country cost 50% of the care costs. 
and 20% of people are 80% of the care costs. That's true. But predicting who's going to be in that group, we have data that helps us do that, but we don't share it well between payers and providers. And if providers don't know about those folks, it's hard to intervene before we start spending a lot of money. So figuring out how do we get through that lost valley and uh, and come out on the other side where we're taking better care of people for lower costs is the real conundrum in the United States right now. So there's a continuum of payer provider partnerships. Um, at you know at at the far left side, there's really what we would think of as traditional fee for service, where there's simply a contractual uh, relationship in which um, negotiation occurs every you know one year, two years, three years, five years, depending on your contract with the payer. Um, but it's a contentious and adversarial negotiation because at the end of the day, that contractual relationship is designed to create winners and losers um, on one side or the other of the contract. As we move further toward the right, there's alignment where there's upside only um, kinds of uh, opportunities for providers. There's shared value where there's more collaboration through data sharing. Uh, And while there may be some upside and downside there, they tend to be in corridors that are limited Um, Then there's sort of differentiated value, which is more of a narrow network kind of structure where a payer and a provider will uh, align around a cost structure and that payer will then direct more business to the provider and the provider grows volume, but, um, but accepts a lower fee structure for that enhanced volume. Um, moving further down the true alignment structures and partnership structures is joint investment, where there are shared financial stakes and interests um, that can involve things up to full risk. Um, there's membership involvement where there can be equity ownerships between payers and providers uh, that are integrated. And then there's true full integration where um, the payer and the provider are a singular organization with one bottom line. And so there is no more of the winner and loser kind of thing that was all the way on the left-hand side. And it's really a situation where everyone is trying to provide the best care possible at the lowest cost possible with the least unnecessary variation in care possible. This is the continuum that we're moving down. Lots of organizations, you can pretty much take any organization and pin them somewhere on this curve. The issue is that the most expensive part of the curve is on the left-hand side, um, from a, from a societal perspective and the least expensive part of the curve is on the right, but the fewest organizations are on the right-hand side of the curve and the largest number of organizations are on the left-hand side of the curve. So this is what we're doing in, in my current role with my current organization. We are creating that fully integrated model. Um, it's called living health. It's a model where, um, we have a singular bottom line between, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, that's a payer that is in multiple states, but in Western Pennsylvania with about um, a population in Western PA that we're taking care of is about 5 million people. Uh, There are about 1.4 million beneficiaries in the Highmark world across all of the segments. So that's Medicare, that's Medicaid, that's um, ACA programs, that's fully insured, and that's self-insured employers. And over the last few years, we have been able to demonstrate improved outcomes for folks where STARS ratings and LeapFrog ratings have improved. 
We've created better experiences for members where the NPS score uh, has gone up by 46%. Um, our cost structure relative to other providers in the market has differentiated by as much as uh, 5 to 6%. And uh, if you look at the um, operating margin as a result of that, it's not that it has cost the organization more money. In fact, the operating margin has improved over time using this kind of model where we are a blended bottom line. So um, the cost trends pretty profoundly for commercial and Medicare Advantage you see on the left have been very significant in terms of relative to the market. That's not to say on the commercial side, we still haven't had cost escalation. Inflation has been uh, pretty hard over the last four years. But um, in Medicare Advantage, we've actually dropped the total cost over the last four years and, and relative to the market, which has continued to have inflation. What that has meant is that um, there is a virtuous cycle for the payer and provider, which is that the provider is providing more efficient um, care that is of high quality and that more efficient care has brought the cost down and that has allowed the payer to sell more insurance because the the value proposition is that we can provide high quality care at a lower cost or a lower cost trend to businesses um, across Western Pennsylvania. And that is the virtuous cycle that's been hard to get to for but in the relationship between payers and providers. We think we're at the front edge of that. We're very proud of these kinds of results. So um, what that has required for us is, is a really deep and holistic partnership. It, it can't be just a transactional bargain. We've committed to sustaining joint economics around the delivery of care and not just per, you know try to reduce provider revenue. And we've committed to try to help each other in the market. As I mentioned, it's directing more business from the payer to the provider and the provider doing that business at a lower cost and equal or higher quality that then allows the payer to sell more insurance and bring more volume in that virtuous cycle. Um, and so we've redesigned you know, how we work together around a joint clinical vision, promoting right care, uh, removing waste. And it is not a zero-sum game. It's that we can both win together uh, across the greater geography. So that requires aligning people, process, and technology, but more importantly, incentives. And those incentives have to be both administrative for people who run a plan and people who run large uh, provider uh, scale organizations, but it's also got to be the incentive structure for the physicians. We got to get away from pure fee for service. As an example, we've moved all of our uh, ENM based coding physicians to patient facing time and patient experience. Um, and total cost of care incentives and entirely away from RVU-driven incentives. And for our uh, procedurally-based folks, we are moving to a system where we have a expectation of RVU thresholds, but would be similar incentives. What's the total cost of care? What's the patient experience? What's the patient-facing time? I don't want to suggest this is easy, and I don't want to suggest that um, we have solved everything because we haven't. Um, we are in step one of a multi-step process to try to improve outcomes for folks, uh, to try to manage the economics of healthcare in our region. And, um, uh, and we are hoping that we do not find ourselves in a situation like this classic New Yorker cartoon where we need a miracle to occur in order for things to work out. Thank you very much, Bruce. That was a 
Great, uh, great presentation. Uh, I like New Yorker cartoons, so I was, I was glad to see that you had embedded one of those in your slide presentation. This podcast is sponsored by the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's Haslam College of Business. In less than one calendar year, this program will equip you with valuable business acumen and leadership development not found in traditional medical school curriculum. Are you ready to join the longest-running physician-only MBA program in the country and a network of nearly 1,000 PEMBA graduates? Visit tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast for information about this exciting opportunity. And now we'll return to the episode. Via the distribution of shared savings based on a historical PMPM or per member per month or per member per year cost. So there's this pool of shared savings and at what point or do you see that that pool will be reduced as we start to see consistent reductions in the cost of care? And how will that affect healthcare organizations and providers' willingness to enter into those contracts if that shared savings pool starts to uh, significantly reduce? Well, I think the it is a lovely way to get started in a um, value-based structure because there is so much waste in the system that you can take out. The problem is that over time, as you get more effective and more efficient, is the, the pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the incentive for the provider to keep, you know, get smaller and smaller. And because you've taken out all the easy stuff, all the hard stuff is left. And the hard stuff gets harder and harder over time. So I'm actually not a big believer other than sort of as a starter mechanism that creating shared savings pools is a very effective way for us to move forward. I think the second piece of that is that the typical payer structure around shared savings, and this is the way I kind of describe it uh, internally, which is today I'm paying you a dollar. Tomorrow, I'm going to pay you 90 cents. And I'm going to let you earn the other 10 cents back. But if you do even better than the cost of the dollar, I'll let you earn some more beyond the dollar. And on the provider side, that's a really hard equation to accept because all of the work and all of the obligation is pushed to the provider side of the world. And the payer really has no obligation. They're just giving you the data to tell you what the total cost was. Um, That's a troubling relationship to me because, uh, again, There isn't a shared risk has started to pull back on the opportunity that uh, was created. And the reason for that uh, is because the government's kind of finally woken up that, hey, if we if we're paying you a fixed number and we just keep paying you the fixed number and you have a cost that's significantly lower than that number, you're making a profit off of that. But the government is not saving any money. And the government's problem right now, at fundamentally, in terms of Medicare, is that we're still in the early wave of the boomer generation moving into Medicare. And uh, by 2030, um, 
uh, I think it's maybe by 2035. I'm not sure the exact date. The feds have gotten a little wise to that. They started to make more restrictions. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And Medicare Advantage, which was a gigantic cash cow for venture capitalists and for payers, particularly national payers like Aetna and Humana, their margins, and you see them over the last two years in particular, have come way, way, way down. And their prediction of margin over the next year, two years, three years, has come way, way down. So their stock price has suffered. Um, and, and that's a conundrum for them because, you know, if you're a for-profit company, your job as a CEO and as, as an employee is to maximize shareholder value. And shareholder value is only maximized if we make a bigger margin. And if it's harder to make a bigger margin off of the government, then uh, our stock price is going to go down. And therefore, the value of the company goes down and and shareholders get unhappy. Right. So it sounds like you you do think that there are certain things that will and are already evolving with value-based care agreements over time. Absolutely. I think we're, we're in what I think of phase one as about a four phase kind of structure. Um, and, and I don't know what the temporality of the other phases will be, but um, we have come to the recognition that a pure fee for service structure across the country is, is becoming unaffordable. And we are, and the unaffordability is for businesses. And those businesses have started to say and to speculate about turning healthcare the way the same way that they did with a retirement contributions back in the 80s and 90s. Retirement used to be a defined benefit. My uh, father-in-law is an example, AT&T employee, has a defined benefit for his retirement. So he gets a paycheck every year in perpetuity. The obligation that that business of AT&T noticed over time because people were living longer was that that pension liability became unaffordable. And so they moved their pension contributions away from that defined benefit structure to a defined contribution structure. CFOs love that because it's very highly predictable what their cost is going to be. And they're not subject to the vagaries of the market and what happens in terms of the pension fund. And so what we see today is that a defined benefit um, uh, retirement basically doesn't exist anymore. We are in danger that businesses will decide that healthcare needs to become a defined contribution, not a defined benefit. And if it becomes a defined contribution, that works great for people who have no medical illnesses or minimal medical costs for 20, 30, 40 years and can build a big bank account for when they're going to need it later in life. But it works horrifically for people with chronic diseases and becomes impossible for them to pay for it. And, and that is the dilemma. But if we keep pushing the cost higher and higher and the cost escalation continues to grow, CFOs are going to turn to CEOs and say, you know what, we can't afford this anymore. So let's take everybody who's currently in the plan, move it to like a pension structure. And as they age out, we will have less of an obligation. And everybody new is going to be a defined contribution structure. And maybe we offer them a catastrophic plan. You know, if you spend more than 20 grand or 25 grand this year, we'll insure you for whatever is above that. But then you as an individual are going to have a 20, 25, $30,000 a year obligation around healthcare. And for people with chronic diseases, that's um, unaffordable. And, and and some of that is the cost of some of the treatments that we provide, a, a, as an example. I mean, the latest one, perfect example, um, we now have an approved treatment that appears curative for sickle cell anemia. That's 
amazing and unbelievable. But that treatment cost $2 million. If we had a defined contribution program, does anybody ever get the treatment? Yeah. Um, on a smaller scale and, you know, enormous talk about it, uh, in, you know, in, in, in the public sphere is, uh, are all of these, um, injectables biologics that are for, um, that are fundamentally for diabetic control, but have the side effect of causing a lot of weight loss. And so people who are, are using it, Ozembic, uh, Wigovi, all these other kinds of, um, GLP-1 inhibitors, and they do cause, you know, 20% weight loss. That's pretty amazing. And yes, we are going to prevent a lot of disease, orthopedic issues, cardiac issues, vascular issues down the road by having people lose 20% of their weight. So that is a preventive care. On the other hand, that preventive care costs between $12,000 and $48,000 a year to give to people. If you think of in this country, um, 42% of the population is defined as obese and would be eligible for that. Can you think of 42% of the country being on one of these drugs at an average of 30 grand a year? Holy smokes, how do we pay for that? I don't even know how we pay for that. It is an investment in the future, but it's in the current P&L for, you know, in, in pure business terms. These are the, so these are the dilemmas that we have in terms of, okay, technology and our, you know, our pharmaceuticals have improved enormously in terms of our ability to care for people, but they're also gotten very, very expensive. And how do we figure out the economics of paying for those expensive pieces of care that in fact improve outcomes long-term and will save money long-term? But, and I'll just say this because I, look, I'm an executive at Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? Um, as a company, we're going to spend a lot of money giving people Ozembic now and for the next 20 years. But the return on that investment is not actually in the time frame that we are insuring that individual. The return on that investment is actually when the federal government has them in Medicare. And we're not getting any money from Medicare to cover the cost of making the investment so that Medicare spends less money down the road. And that, right, in a, in a nutshell, is sort of the big dilemma for every insurance company in this country. Well, you know, your, your slides did a great job of reminding me how multifaceted the cost of healthcare is. And it is, it, it is a very challenging scenario in the U.S. right now because you look at the cost of care at the end of life or you look at some of the interventions, uh, even some of the surgical interventions that we do for people that are very life-altering, the, the joint replacement surgeries and some of those types of things that didn't exist years ago when, when Medicare really started. And those have all added to the cost of care in this country. I guess my question is, I've talked with chief financial officers of healthcare organizations and payers who really feel that the goal should be to reduce the cost of care to the Medicare number, right? What Medicare is willing to spend. And do you really, do you believe that value-based care, a value-based care model of some type can help us reverse the trend that your slides did such a great job of, of highlighting? I Well, I would say I am 100% convinced that we can bend the trend line in terms of inflation. I am 90% confident that we can plateau total cost of care, um, even with inflationary costs continuing to butt up against that. Um, I, I don't have great confidence that we can decrease total costs of care. And some of the, and I would say they're multifaceted reasons. 
One is inflation continues to be a, a, a tough piece. Um, and, and I'm not talking about sort of inflation of goods and services. I'm talking about inflation of costs of pharma and devices, because that inflation is significantly higher than cost of food inflation, et cetera. Um, pharma, the last three years as an example, pharma inflation has been double digits every single year. So is that one of the differences that you see between the U.S. and other developed countries? Because obviously they're, they're doing something differently than we are in to get the outcomes that they're getting without having to pay those increased pharma costs and those increased device costs or technology costs. How is there a solution there for the U.S. to look at some of those models and determine exactly how they're doing that? Yeah, they're doing that because um, Wygovi costs 10% of what it costs in the United States in Great Britain because we sell it. We, we, we make the money in the United States and we, we sell it at a very tiny margin or at cost to the National Health Service in Great Britain or in Canada or in Norway or Sweden. Uh, Novo Nordisk makes a less than 5% margin um, in Sweden where their company is based off of Wygovi, uh, or I think it's Wygovi. Um and they make a 45% margin in the United States. So that's one piece. I, I think the second piece is that um, the amount of paperwork uh, and paperwork redo and infrastructure that we create, you know, where we do denials and then we work the denials and then we do documentation improvement, you know, clinical documentation improvement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is unique to the United States. Mm-hmm. We probably spend 10 to 15% of our healthcare costs in this country on Hey, we want you to document more. We're doing utilization management from the plan side. We're doing documentation management from the provider side. And we're constantly battling around denials and, um, and those kinds of things. Um, that's a very perverse system. It, it is the ultimate winner and loser system kind of thing. And it, all it does is escalate our administrative cost on a continuous basis because and maybe AI offers us some alternative that, you know, humans won't need to be thrown at these kinds of things. But right now, the only way to manage that is I got to hire people. I got to train them up. I got to have them sit all day in front of a computer screen, you know, basically submitting data back and forth. Um, so that's a, that's a, you just don't have that in Great Britain. You don't have it in Canada. You don't have it in Norway or Sweden, that kind of thing. Um and again, maybe AI is a way to help solve that. Um, we're, as an example, we have a bunch of pilots with four different um, ambient listening tools that are doing documentation into the chart so that the doctor can have a face-to-face conversation and not spend all their time trying to document or, as is more typical for our physicians, doing their day, going home, eating dinner with their family, and then get logging back in and spending two or two and a half hours doing their documentation, which is part of what leads to burnout. Um, That's one of the pressures that we create in the United States that doesn't exist in other countries. And then I think a third factor is that in other countries, vastly different than the United States, um, people expect to see a non-physician provider for most of their care. And in the United States, we have trained the general populace that you will see a doctor. You will always see a doctor. And if you don't see a doctor, you're somehow getting a lesser version of care or a less expertise of care that might endanger you or, or your loved one. And we've got a, we have a cultural problem that just makes it really, really difficult for us to manage that. And we've got to solve that problem. Um, the vast majority of primary care can be conducted by a nurse practitioner or a PA. 
Um, there's an enormous amount of care that can be conducted by a medical office assistant who's appropriately trained. We don't do that in this country. We, we use them as ancillary or as ways to improve the quality of life of the doctor, quality of work life of the doctor. And so we're very inefficient in terms of that model. Um, and, um, now that is separate from, um, there are decisions made in other countries about how much care they're going to offer. Canada, you know, uh, United Kingdom, um, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, another example, Germany, another example. They have a budget that is a national budget and they work that budget. And so that means that you can get a joint replacement, but you may wait three months to get your joint replacement because we're just going to do so many joint replacements this year. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't do that in this country. In this country, immediate gratification is the way we do all of our stuff. If the doctor says I need a joint replacement, on Tuesday, if you want to have your joint replacement on Thursday, by gosh, we're ready to do it. Yep. Well, this has been great, Bruce, and we're uh, we and we've covered a lot of ground. I had I had a lot more questions, but we're kind of running out of time. So uh, we'll uh, we we may have to have a part two of this because you've you've really created a lot of uh, interesting questions in my head. I'd love to circle back with you at some point and uh, and revisit this issue again. And I'm very interested in seeing how your model, uh, your transformative model, really works out over the next several years as well. I wish you a lot of luck with that. Thank you. And truly a pleasure. And, you know, I am available always, Pemba. I I owe a lot to Pemba and, you know, and and to the faculty and to my colleagues. Um, So I'm always happy to do something to help. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you very much for joining and listening to the podcast. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to add them in the comment section on our website, tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast. We love hearing from you and are happy to answer any questions you may have. I will add a link to the website below. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button. Add Pemba On Demand to your podcast library today. I would also appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on your podcast player. Share the podcast with your friends and colleagues also. Please take good care of yourselves. And as always, good luck with your future.